Hello and welcome to the AdNog podcast, the podcast of the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is a recording of our April 2016 meeting. First up, we have our regular What's New segment with Ryan Spears. Then we have two presentations. The first is from Duncan Greaves about data encryption using .NET and SQL Server. And then finally we have Dr. Tom Tilley on building an army of $10 robots with HTML5 and Node.js. Hello. Um, unlike the last few months, there was a um, there was a plethora of choice, which I actually found quite difficult. So I just picked some of the stuff that I found interesting, and a few notes on the end. If everyone, anyone didn't know, build was on, and if you hadn't looked at uh, anything from there, you probably should um, present some of it here. Um, so I suppose the biggest one that everyone knows about, or if you don't know about you do now is it's um, Xamarin's been made um, open source and free, um, which is quite amazing. I think I didn't actually look this up beforehand, but I think it was around a thousand dollars per developer per um, platform. I think is that for professional? But yeah, that's sorry, how much? Twenty-five for indie, and if you're Okay, so if you're writing anything above a certain, um, so you mean if you use it through, if you want to use it in Visual Studio, you need to pay professional. Otherwise, you use it from the command line. Yeah. All right, yeah. Okay, so it sounds like they're trying to aim it at .NET developers that are vis uh, comfortable in Visual Studio, which is good for .NET developers. So it sounds good. Um, as of so, I think you get an update too of Visual Studio 2015, or if you just install it, and the Mono project's been added um, to the .NET Foundation. Um, I'd only heard about Hockey App recently, so uh, Xamarin Insights has been merged with that. It's a way to test your deployment onto on platform, pretty much test what you're going to build to go out onto um, Android, iOS, um, and Windows Phone. Uh, promises to continue uh, building Xamarin uh, Test Cloud, which is they essentially have a whole bunch of hardware, and you uh, they test what uh, you publish up to it, and uh, the charge for a minute, so yeah, so that's still I think you're still paying for that, and then um, self guide, basically uh, to help people learn it. Uh, also, there's the Visual Studio 15 preview, <laughs> which is another one of uh, Microsoft's amazing marketing names problems. It took me a while to even like, it took me a few seconds to even realize that it when I first heard about it that wasn't Visual Studio 2015. That it's the next one along, but. Uh, some of the benefits of this sound quite interesting. You um, can bring in bits and pieces of it at will, and the lightest of those are at 300 megabytes. So um, it sounds like uh, like a lot of things are doing, breaking them all into bits and making it a lot quicker to install and use. I've written down some of the things that uh, are included in the preview, but um, I can either read them or go through them. But there's uh, Xamarin Edit and Continue, JavaScript stuff. Um, 
open folder features, which is like if you've been reusing ReSharper, you can use Kotova's um, included in it for version 6. Uh, is anything really that much useful? I just put them all in there. It's all referenced for you. I've already included the notes in the um, meetups comments. Um, has everyone or anyone uh, downloaded update to RTM? Yeah, I've, I've no idea about that problem, but I do know that out of five developers at our at my workplace, four of them succeeded successfully, and one just completely bombed out. So we had to try and sort that out. So we had the same. We had an issue with a, one of the four developers, a separate one on update one. So I haven't found them that smooth. Has anyone else had issues with one and or two? No one. All right, it's unfortunate for us then. Um, so I've just put up some of the things that you get in this release. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of these. There's lots of um, bits and pieces on this time. So uh, I haven't really used any of them that I've really noticed so far. So um, hasn't really been that noticeable for me. I haven't been using Node or Azure, Azure and side projects. But um, change of name from develop analytic tools from insight tools, blah, 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 blah. Okay, um, I always mention these kind of things because I find uh, the changes over the time that I've been working with um, .NET technologies quite interesting. Um, it's just a little thing, especially with such a big month, but it's another example of just uh, the open sourcing of everything. And this, I, I was looking through and found quite a few other examples of things that are being open sourced um, by Microsoft. And this is actually probably one of the smaller ones. But... Um, I just like the idea that so much has been putting out in public. Like the, um, I think the um, the one that I was thinking of, or I'm discussing when I'm saying there's something bigger, is the, I think it's Office 365 web graphs and all of that kind of stuff that you can hook into open source. So if you even want to change those, you can download it, modify it, and that's quite astounding, quite different. Uh, these are some of the highlights of the productivity tools that um, that were in there. A lot of these, uh, if people are using third-party products are probably pretty used to already. Some of them are not. Um, one thing I found interesting is I only read this recently. Has anyone seen the survey um, of who are the developers, .NET developers of 2016? I thought I'd just bring that up. It's uh, nothing to do with Build itself, but I was very interested in um, in some of the results because we I've been seeing in the similar technology stack for a while. I'm interested to see how it was going. So 1,000 developers were... Um, were involved, and uh, so they, one of the primary questions was about ASP.NET, and quite around 70% were very happy with the, the the core changes. Some of them, well, one in ten, are unhappy, and uh, sounds like 20% are going to be keep on going with current ASP.NET. Um, still got 32% of WinForm users, which is excellent. I mean. I just find that if it's a technology that's, it just shows it's successful technology when even now it's still being used for quick development prototyping or it's probably not even prototyping, it's still probably full apps are built that way. But a lot of people, around one third, are migrating and have moved to MVC. Um, of mobile developers, 60% are Xamarin, 45 or so with a Cordova, 10% native script and 4% native React. And um, the desktop 
technologies are dominated by almost equitably with WPF and Windows Forms. Uh, the, a lot of the stuff that we were seeing it um, discussed, I've never built anything with it. Um, um, is the, I don't know if I put that the right way around, Universal Windows um, technology, but only at 8%. I'm hoping, I'm sure, I'm sure they want a bigger adoption than that at the moment, but it's not working out. Um, here's some of the majority of the trends not to do with those stacks, but like, um, I'll just leave them. Um, for people to look at afterwards. Um, yeah, the stuff that I got there where, where my guesses were furthest away from the truth were the actual, the ages and the demographics of, of users. That's quite interesting if you're interested to look at that. So um, um, one of the things I was very interested in build was looking at the C-sharp pr proposed features stuff. Uh, that was C-sharp still going reasonably, well, it's very popular amongst people. And um, it's high on a lot of the lists that they had there, which was good to see from my perspective. Um, I've got a little bit of code here. So has anyone looked at the C -sharp, any idea what the C-sharp features are going to be or are? So a few. Um, always interesting to see what's going to come up next. Um, I was interested. I don't, not a massive fan of tuples or tuples. I'm not going to argue about what way you say it. I'm not even sure. But the um, I do like the pattern matching that's been um, added in. If anyone's been playing around with C sharp and that, uh, F sharp, sorry, <laughs> then you have some idea of the the concept. So, local functions. I just realised that I did cut this out slightly incorrectly. This um, local function from the comment above is actually inside a static main, so you can't see that it's a local function. But I assure you, it's so. Uh, I didn't bring my. Uh, that's why I'm using this computer. I had it in a in my IDE. So above this, just imagine you're in a static void main and you've got something going on. And inside of that function, you've got the local function from the comment down. This is kind of uh, encapsulating quite of a few things. This is uh, the way you uh, bring up a tuple. So you're saying I've got an int and an int called sum and count. Sending in a list. And in here, you can also say that I've got a um, uh, C. And that's probably wrong as well. It's probably meant to be S. So, whoops, but um, that won't ever work out. But the uh, the um, what we're seeing in here is you can uh, refer to your struct with R and C inside of here, and you can uh, interpolate the string down here in from these uh, declarations up here. So that's quite interesting. I'm not actually a big fan of tuples or tuples. I normally it's hiding stuff that I'd make a class for, but I'm sure that there's some in, like um, instances where it is useful um, using structs in that circumstance. So I think the example that's always used seems to be point, and uh, you could probably use point as an example using tuples. Um, pattern matching. So taken numbers as objects, um, an array of objects, and it's mismatched. And the interesting thing about this is from here down. So you're saying if what's in my list, you're saying if it is an integer, then I'll call it i and do stuff. Uh, another way you can do it is sending into switch statement. You say if in the instance that I've got an int called i, I can do stuff. Drop down to the next. If um, if it's an enumerable of objects, then if I have any, do this. But if you don't, you continue over. If I have an enumerable objects, 
called L, but it's not for, there's no check involved. Then you drop into here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, they've built pattern matching into the structures that are already present in the language, which is um, quite interesting. So um, it is quite an interesting idea, and I'm interested in playing with it more. I haven't, apart from playing around with, it, I haven't done much. Just I just did it for this presentation, essentially. Obviously, didn't do it in the IDE properly. I didn't download it yet because you can't get away with my uh, this issue. And uh, another example of this of, of the pattern matching was say you had um, three classes, person, subclass of that is professor, subclass of the other subclass of person is student. Then you can go through a <coughs> all the people and check the type, and then you're checking whether the subject. Oh, well, you're saying you're setting the subject as as a variable s and then you're checking whether the first name Scott when you're moving in. If anyone that's watched the um, some of the keynote with, uh, I can't even remember, it's not the keynote, one of the other presentations, I took all the code out of that so it's available on the uh, Channel 9 build website. Another example is if you've got a different type and your GPA is a decimal. Uh, the example that was given for this is that you only get a GPA if you've got some results. So that was the interesting, interesting part of that pattern matching. Uh, I've just done a summary here, so it's kind of like a guide for other people to go and have a look. These are some of the other things that were interesting in the um, keynote. Um, bash shell to Windows, that's quite amazing that, that was being done. I'm, uh, I find that because I switch between the two environments that that's going to be useful so I don't have to remember which way to go. Um, it was a on-the-stage demo, but they have the idea of um, a desktop app converter which will take your existing uh, Win32 apps and convert them to uni win uh, universal Windows platform apps. Uh, they'll enable it to be shown as tiles and all of that kind of thing and wrap it quite quickly. The, the, the example that I was most um, impressed with was when they just ran it through, they ran Witcher 3 through it and then played it through a desktop tile. I was pretty impressive. Then another one was when you, they were switching a retail Xbox to a dev kit. So you can, they, like the developers of Xbox can just hook into their Xbox and do dev on it. Um, Windows apps, HoloLens, I always find that fascinating. I kind of think that there's an interesting, in the next 10 years, we'll, I don't know the time frame, I don't know if it will kick off because virtual reality and augmented reality have been off, around for a while and haven't kicked off, but some of the demos were quite amazing to watch. Um, Sky Translate, Cortana, like say, so, um, the thing I haven't quite got my head around yet and I have to think about it a bit more, and I, only look at, I saw this a little while ago, was the idea of bots, which looks like to be little services that sit between other apps and provide intelligence to them. They seem to be quite interesting. So there was the demo that they gave in the keynote was about Skype and the Skype well the bots that the Skype that Skype used and that Skype HoloLens used. So I've got to get mine around exactly what they are and how they fit in. And Skype for HoloLens that I just uh, mentioned. So um, I've put these notes up on the meetings comments so if uh, if you want to look at them or if you want to refer to anything that I just skipped over quite quickly then uh, have a look at those there. Uh, thank you. Hello. <laughs> Can you hear me?
Okay. Right, thank you everybody. Uh, my name's Duncan Greaves. Uh, I've got a slide here, all about me. Well, it's not all about me. Um, I work as a business intelligence architect uh, at Velrada. I've worked there three days now, so I'm doing well. Um, uh, previous to that, I've uh, 20 years experience uh, using SQL Server and also Visual Studio, although as you know with uh, programming, if you've not done it for six months, you might as well start learning again. So I apologize in advance for any of the code snippets. They uh, likewise been lifted from, uh, from Microsoft, but uh, I've previously had experience uh, doing .NET uh, development. Um, my particular angle is uh, from the from the business intelligence side, but also uh, I've got interest in security and architecture. Um, and previously, I've worked uh, with financial institutions, including uh, Voltex in the UK, uh, which is where I'm from, not local. Um, and Voltex uh, handle all the cash counting and uh, filling up of all the ATMs. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of uh, security involved there. Um, and that's where my initial experience with, with encryption came in. Um, I, I live in Adelaide, in Prospect, which is pretty handy. And uh, I enjoy it, most sports, mostly cricket, though, uh, uh, at the moment. So uh, moving on, we'll, we'll go straight into it. Why would you want to encrypt the da data or data? Um, it's really um, because uh, there's, I, I, I won't go into all the headlines. I'm sure you're all aware of the uh, data breaches that have, have been going on um, from all kinds of different areas. But I think uh, it's kind of moved on a little from, from that and that, that now, especially I've noticed in the UK and the EU, uh, legislators are getting involved. They're wanting people to encrypt the data. Um, and it makes it makes sense to encrypt in the database because that's that contains everything. So, for instance, uh, I, I guess Sony had a, a large um, data breach, uh, 10 million people's information straight off. Um, so, if you encrypt in the the database end, it means that uh, your attack surface is is lesser. So, uh, uh, it makes sense. Uh, again. Uh, there's kind of cloud is now coming into the, the encryption uh, equation. Um, really, um, administrators in the cloud, you don't know who they are. You don't want them to be able to select on your um, your sensitive data, um, regardless of, of who they are. Um, and also things like inter Internet of Things that are coming up. And um, there Microsoft are working on the assumption, or I say they're working on the assumption, un unspoken assumption that that even if the if the cloud is compromised, the the machines themselves are compromised. That shouldn't mean that your data is also compromised. So, um, as we know, the kind of um, there's discussions going on in America about governments um, seeking to to look at encryption. So uh, this this um, move from from Microsoft with uh, SQL Server 2016 uh, with the always encrypted is to uh, remove 
any any view of the the data from the administrator uh, and put it on on the users t themselves to to do that. Uh, it'll become a little more obvious, hopefully, where we're going with this. So, um, moving on. Um, like I say, uh, I worked for a few years for um, a company owned by HSBC about uh, whom we're, we're storing a great deal of, of um, sensitive data. And, and so uh, it was necessary of, often to, to um, produce client code that was different to handle the encryption. Um, although um, there, there was more than one way to skin this particular cat, uh, different developers tried different different ways. Uh, often it would in involve encrypting more data than you needed to, or, or managing the the management uh, with encryption. Encryption is relatively straightforward in its uh, usage, but it's all around the management of the keys. Who manages the keys? Who can see the keys? And this was always the difficulty in, in implementing. Uh, bespoke code um, corrections, if you like. So, um, previous installations I've used, um, we've used uh, symmetric keys to encrypt the data. Uh, as you may be aware, symmetric key encryption is, is faster than asymmetric key encryption. Uh, and and um, SQL Server has had for some time the ability to encrypt using symmetric or asymmetric keys. The problem is that those keys also reside within the database and therefore a malicious uh, user, malicious administrator could, could access that data unknown to you. So uh, if you were a, a developing a client to uh, extract the uh, encrypted data, you'd have to um, get the data from the database you would have to um, then uh, use a, a, get the key. You would have to use the key to decrypt the data, uh, and then um, that that would all add to a, a big overhead. It was it was not a trivial task. So uh, just this slide here is just a review. Um, like I say, um, SQL Server has had various um, features in it since um, since the um, SQL Server 2000, I believe, they, they've gradually uh, introduced various encryption features. Um, so it, it, it depends how safe you want to be, uh, what, what data you're um, seeking to, um, to protect. Um, uh, the, um, I'll just uh, draw your attention to the, um, the, the, the ability already within SQL Server to encrypt using these symmetric or asymmetric keys. So if, if you are concerned, please do that. Um, uh, and, and also, um, there, with SQL 2016, there's, there's this always encrypted, uh, which is, as its name suggests, always encrypted until you decrypt it. Uh, but it, there's also introducing row-level security, which has been long been a feature of, of Oracle databases. Um, uh, and also um, uh, data masking, uh, which means that you, um, rather than holding the full credit card number, you would just hold, uh, a, you know, a representation with the, the last four digits, for instance. Um, so um, 
there are there are different ways in which to protect the, the data. So, uh, what what is it about uh, always encrypted? It, it, as its name suggests, it's always encrypted. It's encrypted uh, in the files in the in the SQL database files. It's encrypted in memory when you're using it, and it's encrypted in trans transit until it's decrypted by a client application. So um, the client software um, handles uh, this by ha having a reference to a certificate store. So the, the encryption certificate is held in a certificate store. If I was to um, do encryption with SQL Server today, I would produce the certificate um, from SQL Server, but that, that certificate is held in SQL Server. With always encrypted, I produce the certificate and uh, a reference to the certificate is held in SQL Server, but the certificate itself is held in uh, one of uh, either the Windows certificate store on the machine here, either at machine level or, or user level. Um, it could be held in the uh, Azure key store, um, which again is something that Microsoft are very keen for people to, to use going forward. Or you had to have your own hardware security module, which um, there are certain vendors that sell these these, these key vaults. Yeah. Sorry, what's that again? Um, what the 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 data feed? Old data. Um, I, well, it, it, it's it's um, it's not it's not normally encrypted until you encrypt it uses always encryption. <laughs> Sorry, have I misunderstood the question? Yep. Yeah, you're saying that the, 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 the key store will be visible to the administrator of the... No. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Hi there. Sorry, I'm uh, struggling a bit. Full stop today. Um, you got a question? Yeah, uh, they, they are making the, the, the self-certified for the data in the database. Um, the the um, certificates from, let's say, VeriSign you would use for the transport layer, the transport layer security. Rather, than, we're talking here about the the data layer, the application layer security. Um, so they they are self-certified. Yes, it's it's. Yes, it is the, the data layer. Sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm getting confused with my layers. Um, uh, again, um, it's best practice to use uh, SSL transport layer security 
for the the movement of data to and fro. Um, we're talking here about uh, how SQL Server encrypts within itself. Sorry. It's it's on it's on the server on the machine yes um, uh, it's kind of um, through the, through the console um, so um, Uh, yes, yes. Uh, that that is the uh, um, um, essentially. If it was on, if you, if your client was on the same machine as the server, they would look at the same store on the on the machine level. However, um, be, uh, to afford proper encryption, they would be separated. Um, so um, you would you would have to transfer the key, export the key from the uh, management console. And re-import that key onto the machine of the client. It's it's it the certificate store or the SQL Server machine SQL Server itself holds a reference to where that certificate is held, so it's held on the certificate store on the machine, with a reference from SQL Server saying, "Look at this location." Um, it's probably not best practice, um, but um, for the purposes of this demo, of course, um, I've uh, done so. Right. Okay. So. Okay. So the the client needs to know the information about uh, what the column encryption key that was used. So um, the, I'll go through the sequence of events uh, that happen. Here, here are the, some of the scenarios that are, are recommended by Microsoft. So if you've got uh, an on-premise um, database and server, uh, database and client, uh, likewise, if you've got a, a database in the cloud and client on-premise, uh, then uh, it's also um, would afford this, the encryption security. Um, like I say, if, if there were two separate machines, you would leave the, the certificate store on each machine. And, and then within the cloud, um, there's, there's, uh, it's not, not fully recommended that um, encryption um, where, where the client and the server are both installed on the cloud because um, there, there's, a, there's a chance that they would look, uh, that let's say a malicious user would be able to um, look at the plain text on the client end because the the, the decryption happens on the client end. So um, okay, so this this um, this diagram here shows a little of um, how how the, the 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 data is encrypted using the column encryption key on the server, um, but the client uses the the master key. To decrypt the client encryption key, so the, the sequence of events, if you like, or the sequence of operations, is uh, a master key is created and placed in the in the certificates store. 
Then you select which of those uh, columns you want to encrypt. Uh, they're, they're encrypted using uh, the col column encryption key, which is, is encrypted using the master key. From the, So it references the master key from the certificate store. It, it produces a, a column encryption key. And then um, the client um, draws down the, the, the encrypted data but it also takes additional information about the key store, what, what the algorithm that was, the encryption algorithm was, uh, and, and the location of that, and uses the master key to unencrypt the, uh, the resulting data. So that's how it, it manages that, uh, that encryption and decryption of its payload. So, um, so there's, there's certain, um, you know, keys that are used, the, the column master key. This is the, the key that's used to protect the column encryption keys. So the column encryption keys are actually what's used to, to encrypt. Um, and then when you're selecting them, you can either use a deterministic or randomized encryption. Now deterministic encryption is what you'd essentially uh, know as hashing. So if you had um, A, B, C, D, they would always represent the same encrypted value. So therefore, that means you can uh, use them as key values. You can place indexes on them. Statistics can be used on them. And, um, and the downside to that, of course, is that it increases their guessability. The, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they don't recommend that... Um, you know, if they're easily guessable, you use uh, deterministic, but they're, they're good for the grouping uh, things. Uh, randomized encryption, as its name suggests, is completely randomized, and for each same same value of data, you get a different randomized value. So, um, so that doesn't support any of these grouping operations or anything like that. So, really, deterministic, think of as being like a replacement, uh, randomized as being completely random. So uh, this this um, slide here probably hasn't uh, translated quite as well as I thought it might. But uh, when you're setting this up, you would you would start at the SQL Server end. Um, so you you create the col uh, the, the column master key first. Uh, SQL Server then stores that master key uh, master key in the certificate store. And the certificate store, uh, it keeps a reference to where it's held in the certificate store. So uh, then, it, then it proceeds to encrypt all your columns using the column encryption key, which is based on the master key. So it's an encryption of an encryption. Um, so then in our client app driver, and by client, I'm also including um, SQL Server Management Studio from, from the more recent versions. Uh, any 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 version uh, of client app that supports .NET 4.6 onwards uh, will have this capability. Uh, it's essentially it's the SQL client library that's been updated. Uh, it includes a few more things, uh, a few little um, flags, uh, uh, call it. Uh, so uh, what it's doing is it, it issues the command to SQL Server and saying, please, you know. Uh, Tell, give me, give me the uh, encoded data. Uh, SQL Server sends back the encoded data, but it also sends back the name of the key store, uh, the encryption algorithm, 
uh, and where where the where the client can find that um, that that key. So then it goes off to the key store itself, finds the the master key, and and, and drags that back, holds that in its its cache memory, the the master key, and uses that to decrypt the column encryption keys, which in turn decrypt the data. So um, that's that's really in essence what's happening. It's um, it's kind of um, it, it, it's it's divided the responsibilities between SQL Server, the certificate store, and the client. Whereas before, the certificate store wasn't involved in in any of this. The SQL Server and the client. Uh, the, yeah, the queries queries are all encrypted. The, Um, that's a good question. Um, I might have to get back to you on, on that. So the, the, the query store in, in SQL Server will be encrypted. Um, Yes, that, that, that's very true. I, I, again, I guess it comes down to the the usages of of, of the of the data. Uh, in that, um, it, I, um, yeah, it comes down to table design. So, for instance, um, you wouldn't normally search, search do an index seek on a, a, an individual record. Um, um, I'm trying to trying to think about how this would work out in in theory. So, so uh, the the client driver would uh, be looking, let's say, for one, two, three, four. Um, I'd ha I'd have to think through that one. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point though. Yes, that that um, um, it, it does introduce an overhead, it, uh, and that's on one of the later slides. The 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 kind of performance overhead. Uh, performance overhead is, is um, according to others, is in the region of 25-30% slower. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, well, I'll, I'll just give you a quick sneak preview of the... Um, SQL Server. I need to put my glasses on for this one. So, <sighs> okay, so uh, what we've got here. I've uh, created a table, and it should now appear here, patient's table. Um, and just to go through the, I'll go through the, the wizard. So there is now a, an option 
encrypt columns. Uh, it brings you to this wizard here. So um, what you do is select the select the fields that you want to encrypt. This is a social security number, which is like Medicare number or whatever. Um, you, you would use either deterministic or randomized, as I said before. So deterministic we're using in, the, in this case because it, it's possible that you might want to group records on, on the social security number. And then the birth date, uh, the example here. Whoops. We'll use randomized, just so nobody can guess it. Now, the encryption key, uh, because I've done this before, I'll create a new encryption key. This was just to make sure it worked, <laughs> which uh, let's hope it does. So then you go on to the next one. So it's saying, would you like to use one of the existing master keys or generate a new one? Uh, where would you like to store it? in the Windows Certificate Store or the Azure Key Vault. Um, and uh, selecting the master key source. Uh, I'm, I'm putting it in the user profile now. Um, you can use the machine profile or... So you, you can either generate a power scale to, to run later or proceed to finish. So. Sorry if that's a bit quick. It's just um, with it being the .NET user group and not the SQL Server user group, I thought I'd just run through the the wizard. I think the the things you need to know is there are there is a wizard that does the stuff for you. You can script it out to see that what the SQL commands are, um, and the wizards uh, and and the functionality also are, are on the Management Studio. So if I've done, so that's it. So it also allows for uh, key key cycling as well. So uh, you know, if you need to update the keys, um, um, it will it will allow for that. So um, moving on, without further ado. Okay, so you, I've used the, the wizard. Um, so uh, when you're doing client development, uh, ensure that the client has got access to the key store. And that key store could be, uh, like I say, the, the Windows Certificate Store or uh, Azure Certificate Store. Um, it's, it's stored in the current user or machine store. Um, and yes, I was going to show the, the uh, Microsoft console that... Uh, it appears in the certificates um, on the certificate store. Uh, I, I can't remember the command for for getting the certificate store. So, yeah, uh, maybe if you could uh, bring up. Yeah, go for it. Certificate manager. Here we go. So, yep, that's right. So. Um,
So here is uh, an example of uh, the always encrypted certificate, and uh, you can ex export that. Uh, there's various various ways. Again, there is a, a a wizard that helps you with that, so you can export it to another machine or you, uh, import it into another certificate store. Um, so. Okay, so um, uh, Azure, if you're using the Azure key store, there are PowerShell scripts available. Um, you need to grant that to the to, to the users. Um, uh, make sure the key store provider names are always the same. And, and and this really is, after all that, the <laughs> the the direction you give to the SQL client is this. Uh, addition to the uh, con uh, connection string, and you just put column encryption setting equals enabled. Now that tells the client, uh, the SQL client, it tells them that you're using this uh, feature, and that's when it goes off and tries to find the certificate store for you to bring back the certificate. Um, and, and essentially, that's the only change you would have to make to your code. And I think that's why it's good, <laughs> given the uh, previous difficulties of, of um, retrieving encrypted data. Certainly, it, it, it works if you just have small changes to make. Um, and also, it, it enforces the idea of using SQL parameters. Um, so you know when you, you create a, a parameter, you create parameter objects. So uh, the, um, sometimes it allows you you can. You can just use free SQL, select from patient's table, uh, name equals Dave. Um, now you would have to uh, create, a, it would enforce the creation of a parameter saying where pram equals and pram1 is Dave. So um, enforcing a bit of good practice um, uh, on, on it there. So here we go. Um, here's the... Recent projects, so okay. Like I say, it's just a demo. It's been a while, and uh, I'm, I'm just using the the examples that have been given from uh, the Microsoft website. So uh, it's what this uh, form is going to do, and I'll just bring it up to just show you is. Um, Okay, so uh, I've got this. This shows the connection string. And like I say, if there's any takeaways from today, it's that the connection string, in order to use always encrypted, has this on the end. Column encryption setting equals enabled. And that's, that's really the only change you would need to make, apart from, of course, implementing the uh, encryption. So um, the uh, the code loads and, and displays um, various members of the England cricket team. As you can see, there the, the, that data I'm displaying here is unencrypted. If I go back to uh, 
the patient's table, um, select top thousand. This is where it will show me up, but uh, no, it hasn't. You can see that actually in the database end, it's encrypted. Yet in our client, it's unencrypted. So um, that's what's happened is the, the client has said, give me the information from the patient's table. SQL Server, uh, SQL Server has said, oh yeah, here's the encrypted data that you wanted. Um, and here's the location of the key store. And here's the encryption key that I used, the, the column encryption key I used. And here's where you can find that, that, that key. So the, the client has automatically gone off. It's got the, the master key from it, its own um, Windows certificate store. Um, and use that to decrypt the column encryption key and in turn decrypt the data. So, um, phew, that worked. Um, it's um, it's interesting to note that, um, and again, I, I will. There there are a couple of um, um, views. Um, as you know, in SQL Server, there is uh, management views. So um, I think one of these. Um, we'll look at the uh, encryption keys view, and uh, it's telling you. Uh, the key name, the key algorithm name, and where the key path is. So that's the information that my client needs in order to uh, find out where it's getting its keys from. Um, I think there's a, another another view that... No, not that one. Two, two columns, screw one. I think it was me. Yeah. So that's that's the, um, the these these um, system views that tell me which which of the fields are encrypted. It, you can also find out from uh, Management Studio as well. So um, to just um, Through this one, I'll I'll just show in the code um, where the um, which what one thing that's uh, important to do in the project properties is um, with the framework should be 4.6 or higher. So uh, just ensure that you've got that in, um, and then. In the code, we've uh, used the connection string builder, and it uses this um, connection encryption column encryption set equals enabled. That's what adds the little bit on the end of the connection string. Um, like I said, with um, uh, SQL Server uh, Management Studio. Um, it, it itself is a client that's built with .NET um, 
4.6. So, uh, Studio up again. Okay, so it's um, sorry. I just wanted to uh, to show you this when you're connecting in the options. Um, you can put additional connection parameters. And if I put in there, the column encryption setting is enabled, then I connect. So this is, um, I've told it where to find the key now. So um, if I do a quick select on my table, uh, it should now know where that column encryption key is kept, where the master key is kept. And it's it's decrypted that data for me in the in the management studio client. I think part of this is um, what Microsoft are trying to do is to uh, separate the uh, business users as stewards of the data from the administrators of administrators of the database. Um, so it allows uh, authorized users to uh, get the data. Okay, so. Uh, Looking at some of the best practice and some of the considerations, only certain data types are, are, are allowable. Um, things like XML and all the, you know, different ones. Uh, uh, it, it, there's a list that you can look up, which, which, which. Um, uh, if you've got keys, indexes, and statistics, um, they can only be used on deterministic fields, not randomized fields. Again. Uh, if you think of it as being a hash replacement for a value rather than a, a fully randomized uh, encryption. You, you increase your, your storage volume because, of course, um, they're stored as via binary two fields rather than, let's say, string 11. Um, and also, uh, there's, the, there's this decrease in input and output, um, as I said, 25-30%. Um, uh, hi. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yes. No, no. I mean, I would, I would have to uh, um, refer you to uh, people who've looked at the performance overall. Um, that's, that's. I'm just repeating that fact. That fact that. You can't index a randomized field, and that's it won't let you. Yeah. 
Because it's that big and not that big. Yes. I, I mean, um, I, I again, uh, refer you to, uh, like a, a blog post I did, which is, uh, it, it, it solves a lot, uh, some of, a lot of the technical issues, uh, but they surface again as management issues. So it's whether you should actually be using these fields as keys. Uh, is that wise or not? Or should you just assign a surrogate key to those patients so that you can group by patient ID rather than this, you know, Medicare number that might be sensitive. So, so yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, <laughs> the index on a, a column that's that wide is, is going to be a lot more work than an index on an int column, for instance. So, um, yes, and, and also you can override the encryption, uh, again, to improve performance. You don't do the round trip if you... Um, you set the encryption to disable, so you might just be retrieving certain fields from that table. You don't have to use the always encrypted on that table. Um, and also kind of re result sets. If you if you are using an encrypted field to return a non-encrypted result set, then then likewise you, it, it, it will do that. Um, one, th one thing to, to note is that actually um, it doesn't always do a round trip to get all the information. So the the, um, the client uh, software will cache the, the value of the master key. So once you've looked at it once, it might just be that there's a hit on that first run at the database, and then after that, it will use its cache value. Um, you should uh, think about using key rotation. Um, what, what SQL, well, the way that it's implemented is if you need a new key or if you put a new key on, it, it encrypts the data again using the new key until you retire the old key off. So it might be that you've got various clients that you then need to update their master keys. You would, yes, yes. Yes, uh, that's a good question. I, I, I know that it, it stores it as a var binary. Uh, I, I think that is the, the gives it enough space to get um, the whole thing in. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is that there are certain certain types, and I, I think GUID is one of them. You can't you can't use encryption on. So uh, you know XML types and things. I think it, it would yes very very soon get out of hand. Certainly it would it increases your storage size. Um, but um, I, I suppose again this this pushes it back into the management side. You need to think about. What is this key? What's its usage? Why am I storing it at all? And if I am storing it, um, you know, uh, how am I referencing it? So, um, and, and also you should really use uh, different keys for test, development test and production. I know I've not always done that myself, but uh, <laughs> it, it helps. Um, so, yeah, a, a couple of code snippets here. 
um, about disabling it to uh, improve performance. If you're not, if you're just doing a select count star, you don't need it. So you you just set the encryption setting to disabled, and uh, it manages that. Uh, and also uh, results are only if you're only retrieving non-encrypted results during your encryption session. So uh, okay, so getting to the conclusions, um, you know it's. It, it's difficult that um, you know sensitive data is being leaked. Uh, it causes no end of difficulties, um, degradation of capabilities, and a loss of confidence. And in a lot of cases where you might be uh, governed by privacy laws and things, there 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 are proper financial penalties to uh, uh, losing or, or leaking uh, sensitive data. So, um, if you're using SQL Server 2016 or using SQL, always encrypted can uh, protect the data in, in more use cases. So it reduces your threat area, your 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 surface attack surface area, um, and um, the the new .NET client for SQL client uh, manages some of the complexity that that comes out of 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 using encryption. I'm not saying that using encryption is fun and easy, but I know that using this method is certainly easier than using the old method where you'd have to have a framework and you'd have to stream, stream objects and manage all the keys yourself. Um, so yeah, there's, there's various things you can use in SSIS packages because of course data gets moved from A to B and C and onwards. Um, that as long as you follow certain rules, you're fine. Uh, and SS Management Studio is always in, uh, always encrypted client already. So um, that's almost it. There's a, a few references there, and on my blog, um, which was really written after I'd done all this research, I sat in, in a darkened room with a gin and tonic and thought. What, what are the implications here? And I think that the the implications I arrived at are that, yes, you can encrypt, but that also comes with a management overhead of things you need to think about. And in a way, some of it is just eliminating sloppy practices, like not using your SQL parameters or using your key values, using your social security numbers as key values, which is not good. Um, and other things, new things like key rotation, etc. So thank you very much for your time and your patience. You've been a very good audience. I will uh, hand you back to the pizza man and, uh, and Dave. Okay, the uh, pizzas will be out any minute now. That's almost... Always the unknown thing is when do I ask for the pizzas to appear? So I, I said five past, so don't don't worry. Um, so we'll break now. Uh, if you've got questions for Duncan, feel free to, to come and pester him about certificates and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so we'll break, have some pizza, and then we'll have Tom up doing the robots take over the world. So. Okay, um, we might 
make a start on our second presentation if everybody's finished eating the pizza. I think they almost have. Not quite Tom, that's okay. Um, so just to remind, uh, you've got to hang around if you want to try and win a prize at the end of the meeting. Uh, if anybody hasn't grabbed their name tag, please do that because that's how I tell who came. Uh, and if anyone hasn't paid me, then please come and do that. Um, that'd be good. Tom's almost finished eating. Yep, okay. Uh, so our second speaker tonight is um, Dr. Tom Tilly. Um, I'll let him introduce himself a bit more, but I've known Tom for a long time, so it's great to have him here. Uh, he's not sort of uh, a regular .NET developer, but we'll still let him come along and speak because I think it's going to be a pretty interesting talk. So welcome, Tom. I feel like Britney Spears. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, thank you, Dave, very much for inviting me. Um, I think Duncan said he's been in his new job for three days. I just signed a contract today for a job that starts in about two weeks. So, um, yes. Um, so, but I'll be talking uh, to you tonight a little bit about my, my kind of recent history um, and bits of that will be sort of revealed um, as we go through the presentation. Someone who couldn't stick around asked me earlier whether um, my robots are for good or for evil and I'll let you decide uh, towards the end of the presentation. Um, uh, it'll be somewhat meandering. Uh, it won't necessarily be very technical. I'm very happy to answer questions. Uh, I know there are some, I've spoken with a few people already who are Raspberry Pi enthusiasts and uh, they might be somewhat disappointed uh, when we get to some of the technical specs on the robot. But, uh, but I hope you uh, enjoy the presentation. What we're going to do this evening uh, is talk a little bit about riding motorbikes in Thailand uh, initially. Um, a little bit about game controller hacking, uh, about uh, a robot I built called Suckerbot that was later renamed a Lollibot for reasons that I'll talk about, um, and a little bit about Space War, uh, if we uh, have time. So um, most recently, my family and I have been living in Thailand for about the last 10 years, and there's an arrow pointing there to Thailand, which is shown in red. Um, and uh, you'll notice that there are a number of other suspiciously red countries there on the map uh, as well. And the reason for that is because these are the countries with the highest rate of road accidents in the world. Um, and number one on the list is Namibia, with about, um, I think it's 45 road deaths per, I'm not sure if that's per thousand people. Um, but Thailand is number two on the list. So Thailand's a very dangerous, Thai, uh, very dangerous place to drive a car. Um, and in fact, about 70% of those accidents are motorcycle accidents. And part of the reason for that uh, is this. So um, this is kind of a very common scene um, in Thailand. So you notice he's obviously holding a dog uh, while riding his motorbike, but his helmet's in the basket. And although you're required by law to wear your helmet, 
Um, we're in the north of Thailand, and I'll just show you where that was in a moment. But, you know, if, if it's going to mess up your hair, then, you know, well, why, why would you wear a helmet, you know? So the law is there, but it's not strictly enforced. Um, and at least the person on the back, she's got her helmet on, but she's wearing sandals, I think. Uh, and so you can imagine with more than one person on a motorbike, people not wearing helmets. It's very, very common to see at least three people on a bike or more. Um, and so you can understand why the motorcycle accident rate uh, is very, very high. Um, but apart from that, um, uh, my family and I uh, enjoyed living in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand very much. And there for uh, nearly 10 years, and we returned to Australia uh, in December. So I'm a computer scientist, um, and uh, I was uh, working at a, a local university in Thailand, uh, where I was an assistant professor in an IT program. Um, and my wife and I were also both involved in a volunteer English program, teaching English to uh, Thai university students in the beautiful city of Chiang Mai. Uh, we love the food, the weather, the people, um, uh, a wonderful place to be. But uh, originally from South Australia, and we've come back um, fairly recently just to be closer to family here uh, in Adelaide. So... There's a computer game uh, that uh, Microsoft uh, had some hand in. Uh, I think it's kind of rescued the Xbox to some extent called Halo. And I don't know if it was very popular here in Australia. No, I'm only joking. Um, it's virtually unknown in Thailand. So in Thailand, there's a lot of uh, PlayStation 2 penetration, um, a lot of PlayStation houses, um, and essentially copyright in Thailand means that you have the right to copy. Um, and so if you buy a PlayStation 2 in Thailand, it comes pre-mod-chipped. And kind of up and down the streets, you would find PlayStation 2 houses. Uh, and you could pay uh, 50 baht, no, just under $2 Australian, to choose from a, a wall of games, all of which were just kind of uh, copied from the DVDs. Um, but because the machines were mod-chipped, you could kind of like play with your friends. And that was very, very popular, particularly people playing soccer games uh, till all hours of the evening. Um, so Halo is virtually unknown there, um, but um, despite the road statistics, uh, all of my family members rode motorbikes at different times. And so when I was teaching at university, uh, the traffic's kind of an adventure, um, and it's convenient to have a motorbike to get through traffic. Um, and so uh, I built myself a Halo helmet. So this is just a modified um, helmet that you could buy off the shelf there for about $20 Australian. Uh, and then with camp mat foam and duct tape, essentially, um, to uh, to make a halo helmet. So this was kind of fun, but people always say, oh, you know, is that uh, is it Star Wars or something? Because the game's virtually uh, unknown there in Thailand. Now, something that is more popular in Thailand is the Powerpuff Girls. And so one of the students in our English program for his birthday, um, I, I made him... Uh, Blossom was his favourite Powerpuff Girl. So I made him a Blossom helmet. It's got these like soft rubber bows on the top, and once you get over about 50 kilometres an hour, they start going like zzzz, and you're kind of like going like this. But but that was fine, and he was very very happy. Um, when my wife got her motorcycle license, uh, I made her a stormtrooper helmet, um, and so this is actually on the day when she's just kind of passed her test, um, and some friends kind of wearing the helmet there, sort of up the top. And then uh, just at the end of last year. Um, 
uh, Gundam, I don't think it's very well known here in Australia, but essentially an iconic Japanese 1980s giant fighting robot uh, series. And um, uh, it's very well known, very popular in Thailand. A lot of Japanese culture, J-pop, things like that, very, very popular in Thailand. Um, and so uh, I decided to make a, a Gundam, Gundam helmet before I left Thailand. And it's just all modified with um, high-density foam, so it's very, very soft. Um, I took it up to about 90 kilometres per hour, and it's fine in a straight line. But as soon as you start to like turn your head, you certainly kind of um, feel things there. But very, very recognisable. And so one day, uh, my wife and I went out to buy some computer parts. I had the Halo helmet on, and she had Gundam on, sort of in the back seat. And this lady kind of waved us over um, and uh, put the um, Gundam helmet on her... Um, child there to take a picture. So it looks like one of the uh, deformed scale sort of Gundam models there. But very, very popular and a lot of fun. And um, uh, I suspect if you tried this in Australia, you'd run into trouble. But in Thailand, you know, if you're actually wearing something on your head, the police are very, very pleased. And so like no problem at all kind of with, with these kinds of helmets there. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. Now in, uh, in Asia, sort of... Um, Around the turn in the millennium, uh, Dance Dance Revolution was, uh, was very, very popular. And uh, I stumbled across an online uh, Dance Dance Revolution simulator called Step Mania, which is actually shown in the top left corner there. And you can kind of play it with the arrow keys on your keyboard. It's a lot of fun. But um, my kids and I decided it would be really fun to build ourselves a dance mat. And at that stage, we were living in Melbourne, um, it was a magical time of year called Hard Rubbish Collection and uh, we picked up an old dot matrix printer and some cables and an old VCR and some wood and we made ourselves a really crusty uh, wooden dance mat. Um, and the obvious question here is, okay, well, how do you connect something like this to a, a computer? And we had a $20 USB joystick and so what I did is I, um, I didn't want to sort of gut the joystick and um, sort of make it dance mat only. So what I did is uh, I put a, a DB25 connector on the base of the joystick, shown in the middle picture at the top there, and we kind of repurposed the parallel printer cable, um, and we used that to connect the dance mat to the joystick. And essentially all we're doing is exposing the switches on the joystick so that when you stomp up and down on your wooden dance mat, the computer just thinks you're pressing buttons on the joystick. So it's a very, very straightforward hack. Um, but any game where you can then remap uh, the joystick input for your dance mat or whatever it is, then suddenly you can kind of use these external devices very, very cheaply and very simply to kind of interface with a computer. So this was kind of my first experience in, um, in Australia of uh, joystick hacking. Now in Thailand, you can buy a uh, essentially, it's a copy of a, a PlayStation DualShock controller, but for PC. So this is a USB game controller for about $2.75 US, okay, just over $3 Australian. So it's very, very cheap, and kind of for your 3 or $4, you get a surprising amount of technology. So you've got 16 digital inputs here, which are just the, the buttons that you can press sort of on and off. Um, you've got the four uh, analog inputs, so the X, Y axes on your, on your thumbsticks here, so they're analog, and so essentially you've got 
sort of 8-bit precision there, so 255 values between sort of left and right or up and down on each of those joysticks. And you've also got two outputs. You've got two rumble motors inside of the joystick, so if you're playing a car racing game and you crash into the wall, then your controller can kind of give you some, some haptic feedback. Um, so again, there's a very, very straightforward hack here, um, and what we could do, depending upon how many inputs we wanted access to, we could either put a DB9 or a DB25 connector onto some USB joysticks. And uh, I've got a couple here that you can sort of pass around just to kind of see how that works. This is a transparent one, so you can see the rather chunky wires inside here. This one um, uh, doesn't have thumbsticks, it's just a, um, uh, a game pad, but you can see we've put a DB25 connector on the side here. We can just pass those around the room and uh, people can have a bit of a look. So once you've kind of connected something to a computer using this kind of interface, you kind of think, well, okay, what else can I kind of connect to the computer? And as you've already seen, motorbikes are very, very popular um, in Thailand. And so uh, what I did is I kind of measured, measured the handlebars on one of the local motorbikes, um, got some PVC water pipe, which is blue in Thailand, and very, very cheap. And so after bamboo, this is really the most abundant unnatural resource in Thailand. Um, and it's used a lot for construction for all sorts of things. So I bought a couple of um, cartoon character motorbike hand grips, bit of PVC pipe, and um, hooked up a game controller to a um, 3D motorcycle uh, game. It's a light cycle game from the, the movie Tron. And so this is actually my son uh, downstairs at our house in Thailand playing a first-person motorcycle game. We've just got a, uh, a piece of butcher's paper and a rear projection screen set up here, and he's kind of like got a couple of buttons on there for left and right, and we also put a mercury switch in there so he could kind of uh, accelerate. And um, there's quite a few uh, projects and bits of PVC I had to leave behind in Thailand, some of which we didn't think would make, through, make it through security necessarily. Um, but here is the uh, motorcycle controller. So there's a couple of buttons on here for sort of look left, look right, and then turn left, turn right. And there's a mercury switch inside as well, so you can kind of like go like this to accelerate. So you can pass that around as well if you like. Now, I couldn't actually find a mercury switch initially in Thailand, and um, this would have been without, within about six months of arriving. My Thai wasn't very good. So I went to sort of the only electronic store that I knew and I was trying to explain what a mercury switch was. And um, they had no idea, sort of, I, I really wasn't able to communicate well at that stage. But I noticed this in the store, which kind of caught my attention. And this is called the Cure Sleepiness Right Away, which is a very catchy kind of product name. Um, and it's, you'll notice here, this is a printed, the small print you'll see there. It's especially suitable for long distance driving, drunk driving, and night driving. And what this does is this kind of hooks, hooks over your ear. It's got a little sort of buzzer in there. And should you kind of like nod off while you're driving, you get this ear piercing kind of ear piercing screech in your ear and you'll kind of hopefully not run off the road, but sort of like wake up and kind of continue your drunk driving or whatever it is that you're doing. And so I thought, okay, there's got to be some kind of tilt mechanism in here. And sure enough, um, this was 
um, about a dollar Australian to buy one of these. So it was very, very cheap. And sure enough, inside there's a mercury switch. And so this for a while, until I found a, another supplier and could, commu- could communicate a little better, this is my sorts of mercury switches for, uh, for projects. <clears throat> so one of the other things we did, uh, I taught at one of the local universities, and at a barbecue, uh, we wanted something geeky and fun to do with the students. And so we thought we'd take this motorbike idea, but instead of making kind of PVC handlebars, why not use real motorbikes? Um, and so what we did is we just got some small pieces of PVC with some buttons on them, and we just cable-tied those onto the handlebikes of real motorbikes. So the students would kind of wheel their motorbikes in. We had a bed sheet in the backyard we were using as a data projector to put the game on, and we had kind of you'd have a, a two- or four-player kind of like split-screen mode. And the students would sit on their motorbikes and actually just like click left, click right to turn, and we could actually put a Mercury switch on there as well so you could pick up the accelerator. Um, and this was a lot of fun to play. So this is actually at our English teaching centre. We've got sort of a, a half round of bamboo under the back wheel just to sort of um, take the rock out of the motorbikes and a four-player uh, split-screen head-to-head uh, light cycle game. So essentially a glorified version of the snake game on your mobile phone, but uh, a lot of fun to play. Now... One of the students who played kind of the game said, well, you know, that's okay, but I like car racing games. You know, I'm not a fan of motorbike games. Can you, can you do anything for car racing? And so I thought about it, and then over sort of the period of about two weeks, I built essentially a, a PVC go-kart frame without wheels. And um, so we made some uh, PVC racing cars. Um, and what we've got on the, on the end of the, um, the steering column uh, we've just got a, a potentiometer, uh, a volume control, if you like, and that's patched into one of the analog axes on the joystick. So you've actually got a nice, really nice, smooth analog steering. You've got a couple of buttons there for like machine gun and oil slick or whatever your game supports, and still enough buttons there to pick up the uh, accelerator and brake and have one pin to spare on your nine-pin uh, D-sub connector. So some students came around one Saturday and we built a second car, and some of you may know uh, an old arcade game called Daytona USA. And we, we found a split-screen version of Daytona USA. So with a, a, a data projector and a laptop, then we could kind of sit there and uh, race head-to-head, and it was a lot of fun. Now, at the university where I teach, we thought, well, it would be really nice to take this idea to an extreme. So we built a bamboo racing car, and this was uh, modelled modeled after a Formula One. Um, and you had to like sit in the car and then someone hand you, your steering wheel was actually like a T-piece made out of bamboo, and you'd have to sit in first, they'd pass it in and you slide it in, so you, you felt like a Formula One driver. And again, it's just got a, a mechanism there to pick up the rotation of the bamboo and feed that into the joystick via a potentiometer and a accelerator and a brake on a couple of bamboo pedals there. So uh, a lot of fun to play. So we, we built two of these with students from uh, the university where I was teaching, and it looks like we don't have money for wind tunnel testing, um, but we're actually taking the cars to a local orphanage. Um, so uh, one of the outreach activities we did with students from the university was to take a group of students to an orphanage for uh, babies with HIV AIDS. And so uh, we took the the PVC cars and the bamboo cars and some other projects around there 
for the orphans to play with. And so here's three orphans playing one of the, uh, the bamboo racing cars that's been painted. Um, we actually forgot the steering wheel, so he's got an improvised PVC steering wheel there. Um, but you can see there's one guy driving. There's another guy peering around the monitor who's actually got the headphones on, so he's got the audio. And the driver's legs wouldn't reach the pedals. So there's a girl that are actually like, operating the pedals for him. So it takes kind of three, three orphans to, uh, to drive a car there. But provided they're involved somehow, you know, they're very, very happy. So uh, it was a lot of fun. So some of the other things you can do this, with, uh, with this idea, uh, this is a virtual pinball machine. So sitting in a, a meeting one day, kind of a standard white office table in front of me, and I thought, oh, this, this could be a pinball machine. And so we built a, a wooden box, well, the Royal Wii. I built a wooden box to bolt underneath the end of the pinball machine, which had a couple of flipper buttons, a rubber band powered plunger, and a mercury switch, so you could give it a hip and shoulder. Um, and so we simply connect that via a hack joystick to a pinball simulator, and we hang a, a data projector overhead and beam it straight down onto the table in front of you. And so you end up with uh, something like this. Okay, so uh, a virtual pinball machine. Now, the university um, is a slow-moving organisation, as most organisations are, um, and I came back to Australia to visit family here in 2014, and before I left, the head of my department said, look, we've got some money, if we don't use it, uh, we'll lose it. So, is there anything that you want or need? And I said, well, look, there's not really anything I need, all of kind of these projects, it is very, very cheap. But I said, if we had a big screen TV, that would be fantastic. And um, uh, about six months later, when sort of um, I got back to Thailand, there on my desk was this big screen TV. And so, of course, we turned it into a pinball machine. And so this is kind of an updated version. It's a little safer. Uh, we had sort of many, many kind of PVC cages that we'd use to hang kind of data projectors precariously from the roof and from stairs and from air conditioners and things. Um, and so this was um, Payap University was uh, where I taught in uh, Chiang Mai there. Um, and this is running, uh, it's called uh, Future Pinball. Um, it's not open source, but it is free. Uh, and so we were able to make a custom table and use this at a college fair to uh, advertise the university and a lot more portable than sort of hanging data projectors from whatever you can find. And sorry, here's just a, the same idea for the, uh, for the Tron game, for the, for the motorcycle game. Now, we were going into... Well, before we go there, um, the first Christmas in Thailand, um, uh, Guitar Hero had kind of recently come out, and you could buy sort of pirated copies of Guitar Hero in Thailand, um, but uh, you couldn't buy uh, guitars uh, at, at that stage, or you would have to like order them and, and have them sent over. So for Christmas, I asked for a, a Chinese copy PlayStation controller, which is very, very cheap, and a, a pirated copy of Guitar Hero. It's actually very, very difficult to buy shrink wrap software um, in Thailand, but um, we, we had a copy of Guitar Hero for our Play 2, and so using a uh, mosquito zapper, uh, I made a Guitar Hero controller. So uh, in Thailand, I'm not sure if people have seen them, you have these electrified tennis rackets essentially. And uh, you can sort of, uh, mosquitoes are a big problem, both for malaria and uh, dengue fever. 
Um, and so you can actually run around your house with these electrified sort of tennis rackets and kind of like zap mosquitoes. And it's very, very satisfying. Uh, they're very high voltage. And you get this bright blue flash and the mosquitoes kind of disappear in a puff of smoke. So, um, so I gutted one of these. There's no sort of zapping electronics in there still. Um, and I uh, just kind of used this uh, Chinese PlayStation controller to build kind of every boy's kind of like childhood sort of tennis racket rock star guitar. Uh, and this has got a Mercury switch in there as well, so you can like do star power and all those fun things. Um, the buttons are actually from a, a TV, two TV remote controls that I sort of like cut down just to get the spacing. So kind of small, but they worked reliably and uh, worked very well. Now we were going into some of the local schools for Science Week, um, and at one of the schools they said, "Look, we're expecting uh, 1,400 students in across the two days." And we we're planning on taking like the PVC cars and the pinball machine, and we thought, you know, it's not going to cut it for like for 1,400 students. You know, there's 700 students a day. There's only so long you're going to wait to to play pinball or sort of for your turn in the PVC cars. So I thought, what can we do? Um, and so I had an idea to, instead of having one person with a guitar with five buttons, why don't we give five people one button each, and they can work together to be a guitar. And if you put that into a two-player mode, then you've got ten people playing Guitar Hero all at the same time. It's very, very easy to get into. You just say, okay, you're the green button when it gets to here. Press your button, okay? And so you've got competition because you've got kind of five versus five, but you've also got teamwork. So if you've played the game, whenever there's a chord, you've got to hit those two buttons at exactly the same time. And uh, it was a big hit. And so... At the, univers at the schools we went into, they would have uh, a room, I guess similar to this, with a data projector, and uh, we just had ten rows, uh, ten chairs set up, uh, five rows deep, and the students up the back would watch, and then you know they'd play one song, they'd peel off, and everyone just like climb over the chairs till they got to the front to to kind of like play. And so I estimate we had about two thousand students actually play Guitar Hero um, in the two days. And uh, using some uh, some tools online, before there was downloadable content, people went, you know, I want to play my favourite song in Guitar Hero. So we were able to actually modify the playlist and inject some songs, change the graphics to sort of advertise the university and so on as well. So, uh, uh, so it was a lot of fun. Now, we reused this hardware at the, um, at the university, and uh, we had uh, PayApps Got Talent. Um, and uh, so this is just the... Um, the Guitar Hero buzzers for our, our three judges. Um, and I wrote some software in Delphi uh, just to um, to be able to read from the buzzers themselves. So um, I just used a, a, a head writing tool to look at the data that was coming back from the joysticks when you press the buttons um, and then sort of wrote some code to actually read the buttons there um, in, uh, in Delphi using a head library. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're able to reuse our, our Guitar Hero hardware but with uh, uh, PC controls. Now of course you need to know who the winner is. Uh, we didn't have a touch screen available at the time and so what we've got here is a, a voting machine. It looks a bit like an ATM but would actually display the names of kind of like the ten final acts on here and then everyone would like file out of the auditorium, vote for their favourite act and file straight back in and it would just write it into a CSV file and we could tell the judges straight away you know, who are our top three acts and then they'd be invited back to perform at International Day at the university when kind of the winners would be revealed. So again, you know, it's just um, 
a USB joystick hiding behind there um, with uh, those buttons kind of interfaced to the joystick via a DB25 connector. Now, we've also done some fun things just using optical mice. Um, and so there's a game called Plasma Pong, which is kind of a reimagining of the, the classic Pong game uh, from Atari. Uh, and they ran into some trouble because they called it Pong. Um, but essentially what we've got here is the classic Pong game, and instead of you moving an optical mouse backwards and forwards, then we simply turn that mouse upside down, and as you slide perhaps a piece of pizza box or something else over the top of the mouse, that'll move your slider on the table. And again, we're just reusing our, um, our pinball table here with an overhead projector to beam that straight onto a table in front of you. And for this particular game, you can eject plasma from your paddle, or you can suck plasma in. So you can kind of like distort this plasma field to kind of direct where the ball goes. And so we've got like a suck and blow button on the green red here, which you just patched into the left and right mouse buttons uh, on this particular optical mouse as well. Um, now the university asked me to build something fun for uh, an open day. Um, and so uh, there's a, a classic game called Puzzle Bobble that some of you may know where you shoot little, little coloured balls. If you get more than three the same, they'll disappear. And you've got this little monster at the bottom of the screen who kind of like winds this kind of very steampunk kind of machine furiously as you move the joystick to actually aim uh, where these bubbles are going to go. And so these are, um, uh, I've called these like coffee grinders, coffee grinder puzzle bobble, but they're essentially like upside down bicycle cranks all made out of PVC. And so as you turn these, there's actually a small optical mouse that's actually picking up the rotation and then using a scripting environment to turn that into joystick input that's running an emulator of the original arcade game so that you can play puzzle bobble by sort of like you have to crank furiously as well, and then in response, your little monster will also like crank in the game. And in a two-player version here, we've got two people at either end of a table, so you're playing against sort of uh, the other person here. Um, so I've got a short video uh, that illustrates just a, a couple of those. Uh, if I can work out where my mouse is for you. Now, there's no... Uh, no audio here, but we'll see how we go. Oh, sorry. Now, this is a hovercraft we also built um, with uh, the things we found in hard rubbish uh, in Melbourne. So this is my, uh, my son, who uh, is a test pilot for a lot of these things, um, with a, um, uh, just a hovercraft we built using a vacuum cleaner motor, um, some black plastic and some spare wood we got from, uh, from hard rubbish. So yes, we just had to clear out the clear out the kitchen. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, um, yes, no secret organisations, or I'm not working for Shield or or anyone like that. Um, uh, you can ask me later. <laughs> okay, so this is the pinball table. Um, uh, just kind of downstairs, it's a, a friend of ours who also taught English, and then this is at the university for a games day we put on. And you can also see Guitar Hero there just on one of our uh, drying rack rear projection screens uh, as well. But it's really um, surprisingly compelling, this kind of projected um, uh, pinball game. Okay, this is the four-player Tron game with the, the real motorbikes here. 
and again a four four player uh, split screen uh, head to head and uh, a lot of fun to play. Okay, these are the uh, the PVC racing cars. And so, again, we've got rubber bands there, sort of giving you some sort of feedback for your accelerator and brake, and a rubber band little mechanism there and a potentiometer on the end to straighten your steering and uh, give you a bit of feedback here. And so, again, we had a split-screen version of good old Daytona USA here. Um, so uh, it's time to start your engines. Okay, this is the PVC, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, bamboo racing car, just with a, a uh, F1, Formula 1 2000 game over on the monitor there with uh, one of my colleagues from the, uh, from the university going for a test drive. And you can see the, uh, the wonderful TP steering wheel that we're able to come up with. Uh, this is my son playing Plasma Pong, and so you can see kind of like this, kind of you can eject plasma, and just as you slide backwards and forwards over the optical mouse then um, you uh, uh, have your paddle move kind of in response to that. And it's really uh, quite intuitive. You very quickly just kind of uh, get a feel for it. So it's a very neat game uh, if you can find it. So this is uh, one of the coffee grinder controllers. So again, as you, as you crank, then uh, your little monster cranks in the middle of the screen there. And again, the aim of the game is uh, three or more bubbles together will kind of like disappear and you have to try and clear the screen. So this is uh, outside the library at the university on an open day, uh, just with people sort of uh, uh, looking for something fun to do. So the university asked me if I'd run a game controller hacking subject, uh, which we uh, just ran as an elective uh, with our third and fourth year students at the university. So this is a Burmese student who has made a um, cording keyboard for uh, Dota, for uh, .a, um, a World of Warcraft uh, mod. And so what he's got here is different key commands and different combinations he can use so that without having to actually take his hand off the keyboard, he's got access to all of his hero's uh, abilities there. And they're all just mounted sort of inside a pizza box which happened to be exactly the right height. Uh, looks like these two guys have just invented a time machine. Um, but these are actually just some deodorant track balls um, kind of mounted uh, an optical mouse and a basketball that fits on top. And so suddenly you've got like a giant trackball controller that you can use to play um, a number of games. I think they're using Marble Madness, an old one by, uh, by Atari, a couple of uh, Burmese students. And um, then uh, these are two of my colleagues. Um, on the way to Thailand, we actually saw a travelling Star Wars exhibition where there was something called a Jedi Mind Table, as well as like props from sort of the six movies at that time. And uh, you'd sit at either end of a table, put on a little headband with a couple of electrodes, and you had to relax your mind because you were a Jedi. And if you were um, not very relaxed, whoever was the least relaxed, the ball 
a little metal ball in front of the table pulled by an electromagnet, no doubt, would roll towards you. And at that point, you panic and sort of become even less relaxed and you will lose. So it's a lot of fun to play. Uh, and so this was a very, very cheap re-implementation uh, that we did. Attached to the uh, ends of the table are a couple of silver spoons, which are acting as electrodes. And we're actually using galvanic skin response, uh, which is actually an emotional response. I think that's what Scientologists use in their e-meters. Um, but so this is actually patched into a USB joystick, of course. And so we're just reading resistance changes in your skin as joystick values. And there was a projected slider on the table that would just move to whoever was kind of winning or losing. So kind of the, the real tables cost, I think, 20,000 US. Uh, very, very expensive, and this was kind of our $10 version, so uh, very, very cheap. All right, so I've been having fun in Thailand uh, building all sorts of fun things, but meanwhile in Africa, there's a couple of uh, university professors, one from Ghana and one who's visiting from the University of California, and they noticed that uh, during a, a robotics workshop, Mobile robotics in particular have uh, an ability to engage students and get them really excited about STEM subjects. Um, and so what would happen in African universities is they'd have a box of Mindstorm robots arrive for the week. They'd kind of run a workshop. At the end of the week, they'd pack them back into the box and send them on to the next university because the university simply can't afford them. So each robot kit's about $250 US. Uh, and it's just really out of the reach of African universities and African students. So these two professors thought, you know, what can we do to get uh, robotics that's more accessible for African students? So the first thing they did is form a group called the Af African Robotics Network, or AFRON, um, and linking people not only in Africa, but anyone interested in robotics in Africa from around the world uh, just into a, into a network. And the first thing they did was decide to have a $10 robot design challenge. They set a target of $10, but you could have prototypes that cost up to $100, but you need to argue how with perhaps mass production you could kind of get that price down. Uh, and this was in 2012. And I was actually looking on a Raspberry Pi, uh, the Raspberry Pi website at the time, where I found out about uh, this particular competition. Now at the time, the Raspberry Pi was... I think the cheapest was about $25, so you're immediately over your $10 budget, but you know it was a starting point and a neat piece of technology. So I'd been uh, playing around with USB joysticks, and I thought it should be possible to build a robot out of a USB joystick. Um, so uh, you could buy joysticks uh, as cheap as about 100 baht that still had sort of uh, analog thumbsticks, need to have easy to use, uh, easy to find tools, parts and materials, have something that was simple enough that uh, perhaps African high school or university students could make these themselves. And so I decided to actually repurpose the rumble motors inside of the joystick. I just cut off the sides of the joystick, took off the, the counterweights that give it that vibration and exposed the motor shafts out the side. Um, and here's me kind of hacksawing off the side of a joystick here. And you could actually use those to drive a couple of wheels made out of milk bottle lids. And so um, it took quite a bit of the very, very low torque on these uh, particular motors. And so it took a lot of work to find uh, a design that was simple enough and that it would actually get the joystick moving. But using a couple of paper clips for suspension, uh, some uh, 
These are some green tea, uh, Oishi green tea, very popular brand in Thailand, and some milk bottle lids. You could actually have a joystick that could now like pull itself around the floor um, under USB control. And when we were working on the, uh, the Jedi mind table, um, I actually reverse engineered some code to control the USB motors. So I rather conveniently had some code already to control some USB motors and make these wheels work. Now, for the competition, your robot needed to have at least one, one type of sensor. It needed to be able to uh, interact with the environment. And so uh, I decided to mount a couple of chupper chups um, onto the thumb sensors. And so the idea here is that when a robot um, hits something, the chupper chups are going to go like doing. And if you're watching the joysticks, then you can look at those values and determine that your robot's just run into something and possibly even get like a simple vector kind of to indicate uh, the hit or something like that. So here's a very cheap um, bump sensor. So chupper chup translates to something like suck suck uh, in Spanish. So I, I decided to call my robot suckerbot. Okay, and kind of, I think Americans call them suckers and things like that. So it seemed perfect. Now at this point, I figured I still had a little bit of money in my $10 budget, um, and so I built a very simple circuit to go underneath the robot. They just had a couple of light-dependent resistors mounted in some uh, pieces of drinking straw, and they were patched into one of the uh, joysticks. So the X and Y axis instead became values that were being read from these two light-dependent resistors underneath the robot. And a classic educational robot behaviour is to sort of follow a line on the ground. Um, so uh, all of the software for the robot had to be open source, so I reused uh, the joystick reading code from my uh, Pipes Got Talent quiz software and the, um, uh, the motor control code that I'd reverse engineered using USB, um, I was able to kind of reuse that, all of which was for Delphi at the time. And so I built some software. Um, again, it was open source. Uh, I released it, but it was written using, uh, I think, Delphi 7 or whatever the last personal edition of Delphi used to be. Now, I'll just show you a, uh, a, a quick video of, uh, of Suckerbot in action. And this, this is the video that I kind of submitted for my uh, competition entry. And so just as you read the analog values there, they're just being displayed on a graph.
All right, and you, uh, you get the idea. <laughs> One controller controlling the other? Sure. <laughs> ah, well, let's wait and see. So uh, they had 28 entries from all over the world, including um, from Harvard and MIT. Uh, there were six judges from places like the Jet Propulsion Labs in the US, uh, and the robots were judged on three criteria. So their potential educational impact, how easy would it be to reproduce the robots, and how affordable were they? How close could they get to that $10 target? So the uh, winners were announced at Maker Faire in New York uh, in 2012. And uh, robots were submitted in three categories. So obviously I've got a USB joystick. Oh, sorry. And I, I just happen to have a robot here. So I'll uh, pass that one around. Um, if you drop it, fear not, you only owe me $10. So, so, um, so my, joystick, my robot's obviously made out of a USB joystick. So there was a tethered category, um, a traditional roaming robot category, and an all-in-one self-contained robot category. So the idea of the traditional roaming robot, you could imagine having a microcontroller or something like that. You plug it into a, a PC where you kind of like write your code, you upload that to the microcontroller, you unplug the robot, and then it goes off and it does robotic-like things. Um, and this, uh, uh, this section of the competition was run won by Harvard University uh, with uh, their Killerbots, which is a kind of scary name really, but meant to be to do with a thousand. Uh, and this is a robot they've been developing for experimenting with a swarm uh, swarm robotic behaviour. Um, and so with mass production, they can get these down to about $43. And it's a small hopping robot with a couple of pager vibrators in them that actually kind of like hop around. And under sort of LED control, then they can actually sort of either have some pre-programmed behaviour or from sort of like a master unit um, uh, do little hoppy robot things. So the second category is an all-in-one or self-contained robot where the idea is that both the computing and the programming happen on the robot itself. There are some really clever um, entries here, um, but this was won by a group from India with their uh, MitBots, which was kind of a, a kit idea that they had programmed on the robot um, for about uh, $33, and they had a number of different sort of robot configurations that students could build. So the tethered robot categories where I entered and the idea here is that the computing and the programming happen off board and you didn't have to include that cost in your $10, uh, fortunately. Um, and the winner of this category was Suckerbot um, for a total of, uh, thank you, uh, for a total of $8.96 US, okay, and you had to submit a list of parts and, and links to, to representative prices online and so on. So I was really uh, surprised at the response to the robot. So um, sort of Wired, the Murray Valley Standard, um, featured sort of an article. I was I'm originally from a place called Coomandook, and so they had sort of a, a local boy makes good kind of article. Um, but uh, Slashdot, IEEE Spectrum, and then uh, Thai language newspapers, Finnish newspapers, Chinese newspapers, German newspapers, Russian newspapers, Dutch newspapers, um, oh, websites, sorry. It's very, very interesting, just kind of the, the response to this, um, uh, to this robot. Um, 
Now, uh, in the US, uh, they thought that sucker might have some negative connotations. Um, and so they asked if I'd consider renaming the robot, and eventually we came up with um, Lollibot. And someone asked me where I actually took this photo of the robot, and I said, well, it's actually on Mars, but uh, they didn't realise it had been photoshopped. So uh, back in uh, January 2013, they paid $20 to send my $10 robot to the US for a uh, museum exhibition. And so I actually used a, a couple of uh, the original parts, but I built a second robot that I said, look, don't bother posting it back, you can keep it. Um, and so I think the one that's going around is actually mostly my sort of original kind of robot uh, from the competition. But they put it on display at a, uh, a science and technology museum at uh, University of California uh, in America. So these are the two professors, Professor Ayoko Korsar and Professor Ken Goldberg. Um, uh, so Ayoko teaches in Ghana currently. Ken was born in Nigeria, um, but teaches at, um, I think, UCLA. Um, but in March 2013, they won a Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Award just for the way that the competition had really sort of by an order of magnitude, kind of reduced the, the cost of uh, robotics, or at least potentially. Um, but, um, yeah, they were uh, just really thrilled with the response of the competition overall and the way that that had sort of really been working to bring down uh, robot prices and make those very, very affordable. Now, obviously, since then, a lot of things have happened. And uh, if anyone's kind of in the, the Arduino or microcontroller space, you'll realise that, you know, for less than $5 now, you can buy amazing sort of microcontrollers that are cheap enough to leave in projects. Um, but, you know, certainly at the time, to pay $3 for like um, four analog to digital converters, all of your inputs plus your rumble motors, um, it's certainly a, a very, very cheap package. So uh, I've been building this robot uh, with students um, in, uh, in Thailand. So this is a series of uh, workshops where students worked um, uh, together to build sort of uh, ro robots uh, in about two or three hours. Um, and then in Ghana in May 2013, students there built, uh, built lollybots at a, at a workshop. And this was actually a training session for um, a workshop that happened later in the year when more students came. And then in August, uh, the students from the earlier workshop helped another round of uh, high school students actually build the robots. Uh, and there are some really interesting blog responses, particularly from female students in Ghana, just saying, you know, you wouldn't believe what girls can do. Um, and just saying, you know, they got to sort of hacksaw and do all of these very non-traditional things for them. They were so excited about um, being able to build these robots for themselves, as opposed to... And um, during the week, they also used Lego Mindstorm kits. Um, and so they're able to do a lot more in terms of programming and problem solving and so on. But they were just really thrilled to have a sense of ownership and say, you know, this is a robot that I built kind of from the ground up, essentially. Very, very excited. And again, at uh, Pyatt University, where I teach with, uh, with Thai students running uh, workshops with students there, uh, building um, lollipop robots. So I wrote to the, uh, the um, parent company of Chupa Chups, who's now a, a French company, and they put me onto their men in Thailand, who very kindly gave me 900 Chupa Chups uh, for building robots with. And uh, so 
any of the, or you can see at least one of the students there has got like a, a chuppa chup hanging out of his mouth. So students of these workshops just be like walking around, everyone's got like a chuppa chup in their mouth and it was a lot of fun. So they were, they were very kind. So there are some issues here um, and the first one is in terms of software limitations. So um, to enter this competition I'd reused existing Delphi code um, that I'd um, produced from some of my other projects because that was obviously convenient. There's no point reinventing the wheel and I was on a tight time budget to do that. But what that would mean is that an African student uh, would need to um, buy a commercial IDE or pirate it to be able to modify the code themselves. And so uh, Delphi is now, I think, owned by Embarcadero. Um, but so students essentially are unable to, they, they can certainly run the code, no problems there, but if they want to do something with it themselves, they're suddenly limited because of the choice that I'd made uh, really for convenience for myself at that time uh, in using Delphi. Now, um, uh, some of you may know Jeff Procise, and he came to Chiang Mai and ran a week-long HTML5 jQuery uh, workshop. Um, and so at that time, my son suggested and said, you know, um, why don't you build an HTML interface for the robot? And I said, oh, silly son, you know, obviously there are some issues here. The first of which is that web browsers are sandboxed at that time and can't access USB devices. But it was actually a, an excellent idea and I thought some more uh, about this and um, I ended up building a, a Node.js server that could use the uh, Node.hid library to talk to the robot and then... Um, an HTML5 web page is the interface. Uh, so all you needed now was a text editor to be able to sort of um, to make changes to the code. And um, you've now got uh, an interface that runs in a web browser and doesn't require an IDE for students to be able to modify the code themselves. They can make changes to the code and see it sort of in their browser. So I used the node hid library to kind of handle USB communications with a robot and just good old socket I.O. to actually talk between the web page and the, uh, the node server. Um, and uh, Commander.js uh, using jQuery and uh, some jQuery spark lines here. So this is the HTML reimagining of that page. And so you've, got, you've still got sort of like your graphs here. And this table is kind of animated. So as you click on a, a part that you're interested in, it will kind of like expand um, for you to, uh, to see what's happening. And so I've been amassing this um, intercontinental army of robots, both um, in Thailand and uh, in Africa. And a gentleman who was here earlier but had to leave, again, he asked me kind of if my robots uh, were for good or for evil. Uh, and certainly they've, I've, I've built them to be good, but you know that, as with all science fiction stories, something goes horribly wrong and doesn't turn out as we expect. And uh, you'll notice uh, a rather suspicious uh, commit here. It was actually made by me, um, but to the, uh, the code repository on GitHub, and it says, fixed minor typos in comments and sealed the world's fate. Okay. So if we have a look at the uh, commit, you notice something a little bit suspicious here. And I apologize that that's quite small, but you'll notice there's some, some unusual looking... Uh, it's just Unicode, which is kind of legal JavaScript here, but there's something that seems to be disguised in Unicode. Um, so if we make that a, a little bit bigger, uh, any guesses? 
no problem. And I won't get you to pull out your ASCII decoders or uh, anything else. But it actually says initiate robot uprising. Okay? So um, fortunately, there's no equivalent command on the client at the moment to actually do anything with that. Okay? But there is a, uh, a secret initiate robot up uprising command built into the server. So uh, should, I never, should I ever need to call on my legion of uh, lollipop robots, uh, they're, uh, they're at my beck and call. Uh, sorry? Uh, no, yes, I haven't, haven't built the three laws in, so we're all in big trouble. So um, in September 2013, they asked me if I'd talk about uh, the robot um, and some of my other projects at TEDx Chiang Mai, one of the locally organised uh, TEDx events. Um, and so it was a really fun sort of event to be involved with. And as part of the event, I set up uh, the Coffee Grinder controllers and multiplayer Guitar Hero out in the lobby, so just so that people could play uh, during, during the event. And there's this gentleman in the bottom right-hand corner uh, who came up to me afterwards and uh, was having a, a chat and said, you know, I've been doing this since the 1960s. And I thought, who is this guy, you know? Um, and he said, you know, yeah, you know, I, uh, back in the day we were hooking up uh, missile controller joysticks to play computer games and all sorts of things. And uh, I was wondering if he might have been uh, deranged or something like that. But he gave me his name, and uh, his name is Dan Edwards. And so as soon as I sort of got home, I googled Dan Edwards, and sure enough, I found this picture. And this is what many people consider to be the first uh, video game. Now, it's not video, but it is kind of a, a vector kind of trace display. And this is a game called Space War. I apologise that the text's a little small there, but this is Dan Edwards on the left uh, playing Space War, not only the first computer game, but many people consider this to be the first game controller as well, which made out of some old telephone exchange uh, switches. And so... Um, I did a bit of reading online, and um, uh, they'd had, in the 1960s, Bomark missiles. And uh, this PDP-1 computer had been donated to MIT uh, by Digital Equipment Corporation. And uh, apparently as a tax write-off, they could sort of like give it to the university and then kind of like take that off their tax and somehow profit uh, in the process. Um, but they'd also been donated this uh, missile control console, um, and they actually hooked it up to play... Uh, again, this game that people had been playing on a million-dollar computer sort of after hours um, called Space War. So Dan was involved um, in implementing a number of uh, features in Space War. And if you're interested, there's a very, very uh, faithful online... Well, it's actually an emulator, so it's running the original code. It's got multiple versions, and there's a very fanatical guy who is... Um, uh, looking at the code and looking at sort of how things were implemented and it's really very much a personal kind of archiving project that this guy's embarked upon. So this was uh, Space War. Now, uh, the last time I ran the game controller hacking subject at Pipe University, I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to get Dan Edwards to come along and uh, talk to my students? And so I was able to get in contact with him and um, here's a picture uh, from Creative Computing in August of 1981 of this kind of original game controller. Again, made out of a couple of um, telephone exchange switches and a, and a button. And so I had some email correspondence with, with Dan and I thought it'd be really fun for us to actually play the, um, 
the JavaScript emulated version um, kind of on the day so people could see Space War and kind of see what, what it was like. And so uh, after some email correspondence about the size of the controller and so on, um, I uh, managed to chop down a USB joystick so it was small enough and built a couple of kind of recreated Space War controllers. They're actually just using uh, USB uh, game controllers inside, um, but as faithful I could get as I could get uh, cheaply to what sort of Dan would have used back in the day. And so this is uh, Dan Edwards' last year at PyApp. Uh, we had a big screen. This is the um, pinball table screen here, uh, and I just made a kind of a, a digital equipment PDP one overlay. Um, which is over the top there, just hiding the rest of the browser. And that's actually just Space War running in a browser with a couple of images on a slideshow down the side here. So this is Dan with the, uh, the recreated controllers. Um, and so he gave a very, very interesting talk about the early days of computing at MIT in the 1960s. Uh, he went on to work for the NSA. Uh, he coined the term Trojan horse, um, which you're all familiar with. Uh, so a very, very interesting guy. So uh, it was a real sort of honour to meet him, and I gave him these two kind of recreated controllers uh, just to sort of thank him for coming and uh, speaking to us. Now, his talk was very, very interesting, and uh, that brings me to the end of my talk uh, this evening. I hope you've also uh, found it interesting. Um, and if you've got any questions, I'm uh, happy to field those now or to stick around and uh, talk to people. Um, well, I've got plans for a lot of my projects online there um, and uh, some code, uh, including the scary kind of take over the world commit there on GitHub. So you're very welcome to sort of have a look or make use of any of that, and please feel free to, uh, to get in contact with me. But uh, does anyone have uh, any questions? <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, other projects. So, yeah, you know, there's always, um, much the lament of my wife, I think, there's always kind of a project on the boil somewhere or something that I want to be building. Uh, it's usually a question of time. So, yeah, sorry. Okay, um, so uh, where I was teaching at Pipe University, it was an information technology program. So as an associate professor of uh, information technology. Yeah, uh, sorry, assistant professor of uh, information technology there, yeah. Yeah, so uh, living down at Port Elliot, so uh, we've kind of moved back to Adelaide after being, over, well, Australia for uh, after being overseas for nearly 10 years, again, to be closer to family, and my wife's folks are down there at Port Elliot. So uh, we're living sort of uh, in a room at the back of their property uh, at the moment um, and sort of been looking at, you know, academic positions and other things here. And again, just this afternoon, I've just signed a contract just for a mobile development job, not in a .NET space, sorry, people, um, but uh, just kind of using Cordova, uh, React, Node.js, those sorts of technologies. Um, but it's for a, a small company with a very startup kind of feel uh, here in Adelaide. So, yeah. So uh, uh, I'll be sort of back into the development world after nearly 15 years for me. So... Uh, Again, um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. So, yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs>